HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code TASTEPOD, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, all one word, for 25% off your order. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Milk, believe it or not, has long been hotly debated, both culinarily and commercially. In 2009, culinary historian Ann Mendelssohn wrote about how varieties of animal milk have been processed and consumed since antiquity in her book, Milk, The Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages. I spoke with her about it a few years ago on episode 99. And now, historian Mark Kolansky, author of popular single-topic books such as Cod, Salt, and Oysters, has written a new book about the history and this long-going lactate debate. It's called Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. My colleague here at Heritage Radio Network, Kat Johnson, recently had the opportunity to interview Mark Kolansky for an author event at MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink here in New York. MOFAD's mission is to unite and explore the realms of food and culture, and they do so by curating informative and entertaining exhibits and programs. Kat has generously shared her interview program with us for this episode of A Taste of the Past.
Thank you, Anna. Um, and thanks, Mark, for being here. And thank you all for joining us to learn a lot about milk tonight. Um, so as Anna mentioned, Mark, you started this project with writing a piece for Modern Farmer. So can you talk a little bit more about that story and then how it became an entire book? Well, you know, to be honest, I had never really thought a great deal about milk when they contacted me. <clears throat> and uh, I said, so what about milk? And they said, well, I've heard that when they take the calves away from their mothers, the mother cows cry and cry. Really, I said. <laughs> and, uh, so I went to uh, various dairies in the area, Hudson Valley, and, uh, and asked about this. And <clears throat> nobody supported it very much. Some of them said that some... Some cows sometimes get upset, and others not, and some cows never care. And my favorite was Ronnie Ostrovsky from Ronnie Brook, who, who said, you know, there's all kinds of different mothers. <laughs> like people. Right. <laughs> but, you know, in the, in the process of, the, of, the, of these interviews, I started seeing how, you know, animal rights was one of many things that dairy farmers were confronted with and what all of these things, GMO-free and organic and, uh, um, you know, there's a whole list of things, bottle or uh, glass bottle or plastic, all, the, all these things um, were to dairy farmers uh, decisions they could make because the fundamental problem with dairy farming in this country and you know, in all of the countries in the world that I visited, really, is that the price of milk is too low. Um, and farmers can barely make a living. Uh, they are really struggling in, in New York State right now. Um, and there's a recommended price, a, a, a government-recommended price. <clears throat> and you don't have to use that price. But... If you're over that price, why are they going to buy your milk and not buy this other milk? Unless you do something special. So all of these controversies and issues represent something special they could do to get a better price for the milk. But invariably, with every single one of them, there's the catch that they make producing milk more expensive. So being a dairy farmer is basically about looking for a formula. Um, and that's... That's where dairy farmers live. So how did that kind of investigation into the state of dairy farming today kind of take you back to doing an entire history of milk? Well, because, uh, you know, so many of these issues have been around forever. Um, you know, like uh, is, well, you know, should we be drinking milk at all? And uh, should we be drinking animal milk as opposed to human milk? And if so, what kind of animals and uh, uh, what should uh, milk-producing animals be fed? And all, all these things have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And then, you know, they don't go away and then new ones get added to it, like pasteurization versus raw milk or GMOs or, you know. So rather than settling the controversies, we just keep getting more and more of them. <laughs> right. Um, 
So you called it a 10,000-year food fracas. Um, so why, why was that the kind of subtitle you chose for the book? Were there any fracases that came to mind initially? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you mean initially in my reporting or initially in milk history? Milk, <laughs> let's go with milk history. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, yeah, well, the, the initial thing was uh, um, whether to use animal milk was, was, was the first one. And, you know, we don't know exactly when that happened, sometime around when they started domesticating animals. But, you know, think about it. God, I would have loved to have been there. How did that work when, you know, there was this baby and couldn't get enough milk because the mother couldn't produce enough or the mother had died or something like that. Got to get some more milk for the baby. What should we do? And somebody says, what about that goat over there? Oh, kind, of, kind of extraordinary. <laughs> Um, what were you, you did a lot of traveling for this book I mean this is a really a global history so what are some of the places that you traveled to and what aspects of dairy were you looking into in each of those places oh well you know I mean in Tibet I was looking into yak farming uh, in northern Tibet extremely high altitudes uh, it seemed like everything I did was a major effort yeah, and of course the hotels don't have elevators, you know. <laughs> so, um, and the, the the altitude is so high that uh, uh, cows can't live there. So it's all yaks. Yaks live in high altitude. Um, and the extraordinary thing about watching these people and their yaks is that you know they're doing basically what I read about in Europe hundreds of years ago, where there's you know there's no milk parlor and. The women go out into the field with a stool and a bucket and milk the animals one by one. And um, uh, they, not too good on hygiene, but uh, it, it actually doesn't seem to be as much of a problem there as in other places, maybe because it's fairly cold. Um, but, you know, this thing in Europe was a problem where they, you know, put it in a bucket and nobody ever washes the bucket and, you know. Um, basically, uh, people understood for a very long time that if milk stood around too long, uh, it would make you sick. Uh, they didn't understand exactly why, you know, they didn't know about germs and all of that, but they knew that it would make you sick. Um, and so they didn't really drink much milk. Uh, except for farmers who could drink it fresh, or you know, there there uh, places. For instance, French orphanages used to uh, have goats and just have the kids go out and directly suckle on the goats. Um, that's the safest milk you can get. Um, the uh, um, the whole issue of safety, you know, was always there. And you go back and you you look at old recipes, you know, and they say. They say, go out to the barn and milk the cow, you know, because if, if you use some milk that's been sitting around, it's probably going to make you sick. Um, but basically, uh, in the Middle East and the Mediterranean, uh, they didn't drink milk. They made cheese or they made yogurt. Um, and then when they traveled up north in, in Europe and they saw more people drinking milk, they thought this was incredibly barbaric because... You know, like the Romans thought it was barbaric because in Italy, the only people who drank milk were farmers. 
because um, they could get it really fresh. But, you know, anything that only farmers do is always considered barbaric. <laughs> um, uh, and there's all these things about how, you know, backwards these Europeans were. And they ate a lot of butter, which I thought was weird, too. Um, and also in the Middle Ages, a big debate around milk was whether it was a hot or a cold food. Why did that matter? Well, uh, this was the thing about um, uh, all foods. And uh, interestingly, it still exists in China, this concept of, of hot and cold food, which isn't about temperature. Um, the big thing about hot and cold um, in Europe was that the church said that hot foods uh, led to sex. I don't know if any of you have experienced this. Um, about half of the days of the year were holy days in which you couldn't eat hot foods. Um, and it was thought that milk was white blood. So uh, it was a hot food. So no, no dairy on, on holy days. Which is actually the origin of almond milk. People now think of almond milk as this new idea, but in the Middle Ages, there was lots of almond milk because it was a substitute you could use on holy days. And then what was the significance of cold, cold food? That was just what was acceptable on holy days? Cold food wouldn't lead to sex. Right, right. <laughs> um, so you, one interesting thing about the book is that you in incorporate a lot of historical recipes. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious um, what kind of recipe testing went into that because it's not, you know, traditional. It's not like these are, these have like super detailed descriptions. Okay, this, this is my deal on, on, on recipes because a lot of my books have recipes. And um, I got to tell you that I don't really care if they're any good or not. Uh, I, I just like recipes as, uh, for their historical value as, as um, artifacts. Uh, you learn a lot about a people in a time if you read. That's why I don't like recipes where they try to modernize or update them. You have to get the, the original recipes. So um, in a lot of my books, like Cod, for example, you know, my Cod book has some absolutely horrifying recipes. Uh, which I didn't think anybody would make, but then when, when, when the book came out in Icelandic, um, and, uh, they invited me there and had me at a restaurant where they made all these recipes from my book. And I mean, no, no, you weren't supposed to do that. Did they like it? <laughs> what? Did they like it? And they seemed to like it, which is even weirder. Um, but in the case of the milk book, there were just so many dairy recipes that I thought, oh, what the hell, I might as well do good ones. So most of the recipes in this book really are good recipes. The Indian recipes are really good. And um, a lot of the old uh, um, recipes are, 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 are really good. There's certain recipes you would want to avoid, but you can, they're easy to spot, like Richard Nixon's cottage cheese recipe. You know? <laughs> it's a, um, Who would take a recipe from Richard Nixon, you know? <laughs> See, it's your choice. Um, one of the, like, most kind of important facts that we start out with in the book is that humans are not naturally lactose tolerant. And so yes. can you talk a little bit about that and um, this most, spec most spectacular mutation in recent human history and kind of what was going on when that mutation happened? Yeah, I mean, we're... Uh, we're really not meant 
to consume milk past the age of about two. It's earlier in other mammals. Um, and so there's a mechanism uh, worked in, um, so you don't have to tell them, okay, stop milk now. Um, after a certain point, around the age of two, you'll get sick from milk. And the reason you get sick from milk is because there's an enzyme in the intestines called lactase, which gives you the ability to digest lactose, which is a sugar in milk. And at about the age of two, you stop producing lactase, so you can no longer uh, drink milk. Um, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And it still works that way for 60% of humans. It's only about 40% who can drink milk. But that 40%, it, it's genetic. It's a genetic mutation. And so because it's in genes, it tends to be in groups of people, you know, like... Africans tend to be lactose intolerant, except for Maasai, who are cattle uh, ranchers, and um, most Native Americans are lactose intolerant. Uh, Europeans usually aren't. Middle Easterners and Europeans and subcontinent is, is where you have uh, milk drinkers. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to me that it's just the, the, the dominance of Europeans that somehow this got turned around so that, you know, being able to drink milk is what's right and being lactose intolerant is some disease. It's actually exactly the other way around. Right. I, was, I was in an elevator the other day, and this, this little boy turns to his friend and says, listen, I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and I said to the kid, you know, 60% of the world is lactose intolerant. Don't worry about it. But I got to tell you, don't whisper secrets on the elevator when there's a stranger standing there. <laughs> so that was one thing that kind of surprised me because I never thought about it too much. But so prior to colonization, milk didn't really exist in the Americas at all because the population was lactose intolerant. Right. So kind of how was milk brought to the Americas? Well, it was, it was brought by Europeans who, you know, were very focused on trying to reproduce European life. In, in the Americas, I mean, there was not, there was not a whole lot of this attitude of, um, you know, oh, we're in America now, let's do everything like Americans. <laughs> you know, it, uh, they wanted to be as European as they could, and so, you know, they they brought cows mainly, um, and um, uh, made uh, made some cheese, made. Uh, um, drank milk, um, the English, the French, the Spanish. Right. Um, and in the early days of New York City, the Dutch settlers brought their dairy culture with them, which is a very important dairy culture. Um, so if we can picture, there were cows living all over the island of Manhattan. Um, what effects did this have on the, the city life that was growing in New York at the time? Well... I mean, um, it wasn't just New York. I mean, it's, I mean, that's what Boston Common is, too. I mean, uh, basically, that's, that's how it was done, is you, you just got some open space where people could, uh, uh, could leave their cows. Uh, the Dutch were kind of dairy-obsessed. In fact, 
You know, this whole idea that people who uh, had a lot of dairy were barbaric um, was killed by the Dutch in the, gut, in the Dutch golden age when they had the world's most successful economy and greatest art and, you know, were, were the country. Um, they were drinking enormous amounts of milk and eating incredible amounts of cheese. And people started saying, oh, maybe this dairy thing isn't that bad. <laughs> you know? um, but obviously having like dairy dairies in the city could be a little bit unhygienic. So kind of how well, would that continue? I mean, among many other things. I mean, True. Um, uh, it, it, but, I mean, New York continued to be incredibly un unhygienic. And, uh, <laughs> Not just because of the milk. It's, it's a tradition. Uh, <laughs> um, so that by, by the 1850s, you know, they, they had these uh, dairies in the city that were um, next to breweries. Also weird that they had breweries in the city. And the leftover uh, slop, called swill, from the beer making was fed to the cows. And that's all that was fed to the cows. And the cows spent their life chained up to this room next to the brewery and uh, eating the swill, which wasn't very good uh, protein. And they produced this milk that was kind of watery and bluish. No problem. You just put in chalk. Um, so that by the mid-19th century, something like 50% of the people who died in New York City were under the age of five. And most of them, it was, it, it was from milk. And, and this was true in Boston and Chicago and London and Paris and Dublin. Dublin had, a, had an orphanage where 99% of kids died, and it was from milk. Um, and what, what really kind of perplexes me about this is you know, it shows how completely convinced people are that kids have to have milk. I mean, the milk was killing them. Enough with the milk, you know, but they had to have milk, you know. Well, some of them won't die, you know. Um, but that was, uh, that was the origin of pasteurization. Um, so I always kind of wondered... Uh, Louis Pasteur was a Frenchman, and so pasteurization was French. So you would think that the French would be the big champions of pasteurization, because French really like French ideas. Um, but they never have been. And then I, I came to understand, this turns out to be much more French, that Louis Pasteur was actually working on wine and beer uh, and studying the process of fermentation. And in the process, came to understand that there were these things that we call germs that cause disease. And that you could get rid of these things with heat. And that was the origin of pasteurization. But he wasn't originally trying to do this to make milk safe. But, um, you know, it became a kind of an interesting idea in these cities where kids were just being killed at an incredible rate. Um, can you also talk a little bit about, is it Robert Koch? I don't know. Or Koch, you mean? Koch or Koch? Yeah. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his <laughs> last name. But, um, I mean, he should probably get a little bit more credit for um, some of the work that Louis Pasteur is. Yeah, I don't know for. how that works. You know, among scientists, he does. But in the general public, um, he does. Because he's the one who really put the whole thing together about 
you know, the bacteria that cause the, the disease and how you could trace the disease back to the, uh, to the bacteria and you knew exactly what was causing all of these epidemics in New York. That's actually, going back to another book of mine, <laughs> that's what happened to oyster beds in New York City as they started discovering that all these epidemics were being caused in these oyster beds. Um, and then before we had pasteurization, there was a period of time where canning, canning was mostly being used to make milk safe. Can you talk a bit about that process? Yeah, I mean, that, that was um, uh, first done by a guy named uh, Nicolas Appert, who responded to a, the, the, the French government during the Napoleonic Wars had a contest to come up with the, the best way of preserving food for the army. And he came up with this process actually with jars, um, heating things in jars and sealing them and they would, they would preserve, which was the origin of, of canning. And it was actually the, the British later who actually made the metal cans. Um, and quite soon this was applied to milk. And the thing was that uh, you know canned milk was completely safe and you could keep it. You didn't even have to refrigerate it, which is good because they didn't have refrigerators. <laughs> Um, uh, so for a while, this, this was a great uh, innovation, and it led to uh, evaporated milk, which became a huge industrial revolution product. And you write about something called the milk question, and I think this is probably a debate that's still going on. It's basically uh, certified milk versus pasteurized milk. What, why are people for or against either side? Well, when uh, they first started um, talking in cities about in, imposing pasteurization, um, uh, Nathan Strauss of the department store family <clears throat> was one of the great champions of pasteurization. And, you know, he said, we've got to stop killing all these kids. And... <clears throat> Other people argued that, well, you know, all you have to do is monitor the milk more carefully. And uh, they were both right. And the raw milk people said that when you pasteurize milk, you heat it, and you kill all the bad stuff, but you kill a lot of the good stuff, too. So raw milk is better for you. And that is also true. But what it came down to was a public health question. Public health people said, you know, it's just so much easier to monitor pasteurization than to monitor uh, raw milk. Um, so that's what we're going to do. And nobody ever said, you know, that the pasteurized milk was better for you. It's just, it was a bureaucratic uh, decision. Um, and was very, you know, fought over for 20, 30 years. Chicago was actually the first place that imposed a law saying it had to be pasteurized. And they're still arguing about it in Chicago, actually. Um, uh, a uh, uh, Chicago uh, politician recently raised this whole issue again. And, uh, it, you know, for some reason, none of these milk issues ever get decided. <laughs> Why is that? Why is there, like, never a definitive answer on anything? Uh, well, it's partly because there really isn't a definitive answer. I mean... Um, you know, it's like these endless debates about um, what kind of animal you should get milk from. You know, I, I mean, 
Um, there's no scientific, yes, they are, they're all different and none of them are exactly like human. Um, and, you know, you can just argue forever about which of these formulas is the best, but there's, there's no real way to decide. And when we talk like about formulas, especially for infants, what's the kind of the history of figuring out what we should be putting in formulas? Well, yeah, I mean, formulas come from the fact that, uh, I shouldn't say the fact, the belief that uh, mother's milk is not good enough. Uh, and so there should be some additives. And a lot of times these additives are just stuff like flour. Um, and then there was, uh, you know, then it became an industry, canned uh, Nestle's, and became a huge scandal because um, they, were, they, they were selling this stuff to women in, in poor countries, mainly in Africa, um, with, with kind of ruthless tactics. Um, people posing as doctors who weren't doctors <laughs> and uh, they would convince uh, um, women that uh, not to breastfeed and to use these formulas and there were a couple of catches there that they didn't really talk about one, one was that uh, uh, you had to uh, these were powders that you had to mix with water and nobody had clean, safe water. Uh, so this stuff became, you know, babies were dying from this stuff. They were actually dying from the water. Um, but once you started on this road, there was no way out, and it was extremely expensive. You know, now the woman isn't lactating anymore, so she has to use the formula. They gave you enough of the formula, you know, so that you could feed your baby until right about when you aren't lactating anymore, and then you have to buy it, and they couldn't afford it. And so they're trying to use more water down, diluting it more with water, and it was a disaster. And when and where was this happening? Uh, well, this was happening in uh, uh, Africa mainly. Also, it's a little bit in Latin America and in Asia, in, in poor countries. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the um, mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Kat Johnson's conversation with Mark Kurlansky. Stay tuned. On episode 276 of A Taste of the Past, I spoke with Linda Civitello about her book, Baking Powder Wars. Her research was quite extensive and gave some surprising and interesting facts about baking powder. It was first patented in 1856 and baking powder transformed the home cook's baking repertoire. We now take it for granted how easy it is to make cake rise and biscuits fluff, but before the widespread availability of baking powder, it was no easy task. And did you know that Bob's Red Mill stocks baking powder? So when you go to bobsredmill.com to shop for your favorite cake flowers, look for their baking powder as well. And don't forget to enter the code TastePod, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, for 25% off your order at bobsredmill.com. It's now officially summer, and Heritage Radio Network's summer membership drive is officially on. Please consider joining the Heritage Radio Network community by becoming a member. 
help support your favorite shows like Inside Julia's Kitchen and help Heritage Radio Network continue to bring you the most entertaining and thought-provoking food stories. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to join and check out the membership benefits now. Um, so I want to turn a little back to kind of the current economics of, of dairying in America. Um, you know, there's been a lot in the news lately of the hardships that are faced, but it's not new. Um, you've touched on this. Why, why is dairy inherently a difficult business for farmers? Um, the short answer is because we are not willing to pay what it should cost. Um, uh, milk should be, uh, from the dairy farmer's point of view, needs to be much more expensive uh, than it is. But the problem is that it's viewed as a universal food for children and for babies, and so it's almost a, as a right. So you can't have unaffordable milk. It has to be affordable for poor people. But rather than subsidizing milk for the poor, the solution has always been to, to just hold the price down really low. And, and that, uh, that's the problem for dairy farmers. Mm -hmm. um, some dairy farmers have kind of come up with ways to either make a product that has a higher margin or some sort of ways to supplement their income. Um, can you talk a little bit about those two options for farmers and any that you've seen firsthand? Well... <clears throat> You know, it, it, it depends where you are. Um, you know, if you look at a place like Ronnie Brook, if you're close to New York, you know, Ronnie Brook brings their products into the, uh, what do you call them, the markets. The farmer's markets. Farmer's markets every uh, few days a week. And um, they're selling to affluent New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. um, and they're selling for uh, a considerably higher price than the standard milk price. Uh, and they um, try to make their milk better. Uh, they put it in glass bottles, uh, which is more than just a gimmick. It is a gimmick because right there, you know, because people like me grew up on milk and glass Nostalgia. bottles. So, yeah, but but I, I think it, milk and glass bottles really does taste better. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, so he tries to. And not just him, but, you know, people in the New York area or in the L.A. area, people, San Francisco, um, around San Francisco, they do all kinds of things um, and charge all kinds of money. Um, you know, it's about identifying a market that's willing to pay more. And, and uh, it's like what Ronnie said about uh, uh, GMOs. You know, he said that he doesn't, he's trying it's hard not to use GMOs because lots of things are GMO these days and, and uh, things that aren't GMO are much more expensive. But he's, he's trying to get there. And I said, why, do you think GMO is harmful? And he said, no, but people really like it when you don't use them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's the farmer's point of view. Do you think that um, folks like Ronnie or that are close to other urban centers have an advantage because the milk is a fresh food. They can get quickly get to a city. People that are maybe, you know, 
further out in the country don't it's, necessarily it's, have that advantage. It's definitely an advantage to be near a big city. Uh, a, a, an organic farmer in Wales um, who probably sells all his stuff to London <clears throat> said that you know cities are going to lead the way. Um, cities have affluent, highly educated people who will spend the money for a better product. Um, I don't know what this is leading the way towards, <laughs> but uh, it's, it creates a different kind of product. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, so there's the premium milks, there's the organic, non-GMO, but there's also um, a small but dedicated market for raw milk. Yeah. Can you give some thoughts on raw milk? And well, raw, raw milk is complicated because um, it's up to states and different states have different... Uh, laws in some states, like I believe New Jersey, uh, you can't sell raw milk. And uh, in Idaho, you can sell it in stores. <coughs> in, uh, in New York State, you can only sell raw milk on the farm. So if you want raw milk, you have to go to a farm that produces it and, and, and buy it there. So that uh, the health authorities just inspect this farm really carefully, but they don't have to worry about issues of transportation or what happens when it leaves the farm. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I went to this one B&B &B where they have like three cows and people go there to drink raw milk. And I, 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 I pulled up and these people, they descended on me and they said, are you for or against raw milk? I said, I don't know, I'm just writing about it. <laughs> uh, people get very passionate about that one. And then another, so that's kind of like agritourism too, if you're, yes, if you're seeking it out. Um, and then obviously there's... But it's the state law that, that, that pushed it into <laughs> You that. have to, go, it has yeah. to be agritourism. Okay. Um, and then there's, obviously you can, as a dairy owner, you can make cheese, you can make other products that might give you a higher margin. Um, but I was curious... Ice cream is generally the most profitable form of dairy. Why is that? Uh, because, well, it's a couple of reasons. One is, obviously, we like ice cream better than anything else, you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, afterwards you, you have ice cream there and you have stuff. How many people do you think are going to have the kumis and how many people are going to have the ice cream? <laughs> I tried the kumis. I would not recommend it. Um, but also, it, it, it's, it's profitable because you, you can't eat that much of it. So, you know, a scoop, two scoops, um, and you, you pay uh, quite a bit of money for those couple of scoops. And, you know, you're glad to pay it because you're getting the ice cream. <laughs> Every dairy store that I asked anywhere in the world if they served ice cream cones said that was their absolute most profitable item. I wanted to ask you, too, um, I know I'm a whole milk drinker, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are 1%, 2%. But at one time, is it true that 1% and 2% milks were illegal? Well, yeah. I mean, they were, they were considered a, a fraud. You know, it was the, 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 somebody had lifted the fat out of the milk. And, uh, and so in some places, they, 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 uh, they made it illegal. Um, of course, you know, it also wasn't advertised. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it really, it, it was a scam. But, you know, it's interesting, a whole milk, uh, when you buy whole milk in the store, it, it has less butter fat in it 
than the milk that comes out of a cow. Why is that? Good question. <laughs> Where does it go? I don't know. Maybe they're making a little butter on the side. Or, <laughs> uh, but I've, I've noticed this. You know, cows produce about, cow's milk is about 4.5% uh, fat. And uh, when you get whole milk, it's like 3.8, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one thing, too, is there's a lot of butter fat typically taken out of uh, a lot of the ice creams that we see in the grocery store. Um, can you talk a little bit about why butter fat is important to really good ice cream? Oh, well, you know, um, fat is important to really good food. It's, you know, we don't really talk about this, but we love fat. We all love fat. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's better ice cream. So I want to ask a few questions about environment, about environmental impacts on dairy today. Um, so... What are some of the factors that went into the rise of industrial dairying, and how did that really shift the industry away from women? Um, well, I mean, what really changed the dairy industry was uh, the milking machines. And it, it's, you know, they really didn't have milking machines until the late 19th century. Um, it's strange, late in the Industrial Revolution, you know, I think 1880s, 1890s was the first steam-driven milking machine. And would you consider that the first steam-driven tractor was in the 1840s? Um, you know, it's kind of surprising, but it's this old thing about farms. Farms are, are, are slow to change and, and uh, not particularly receptive to uh, new ideas. But once they had milking machines, which really was the beginning of the 20th century, maybe 1890s, um, this, this meant that you could produce a lot more milk. Um, how many people here have ever milked a cow? That's you know, way I more keep than I asking this question, and I'm always amazed at how many it is. <laughs> I mean... What goes on in New York? Do people have cows in their apartments or something? I was very surprised by the number of people. <laughs> it's that agritourism. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work to milk a cow, and you got to milk them twice or maybe three times in a day. Um, so, I mean, how many cows can you milk? But if you have, if you have a milk, if you have milking machines or what? modern milking parlors, uh, you know, it's almost limitless. Um, and so that started changing farming and, and, and started, the, the onus was on producing more and more. And, um, uh, and that idea was really pushed by certain people in organizations like the Cornell Agriculture School thinks that dairy farms should have thousands of cows and that uh, small, the small family farm should disappear because it's just um, this old-fashioned thing that there's no need for anymore. Um, but, yeah, it's happening because small farms can't compete with large farms, and it's also a function of the milk price. Because if you have a very narrow profit margin, anytime you have a product that has a very small profit margin, it's all about the more you can make, the better. Um, and so, you know, 
the, the move has been the uh, California, which is the largest dairy producing state. You know, California um, gets this reputation, you know, for food movements and all of this stuff. It's kind of a reaction. California is all about agro-industry mm -hmm. and always has been. It's always been the, the center of industrial farming. Read Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> and um, uh, they have these farms that, you know, have thousands and thousands of cows and produce huge amounts of milk. Uh, Idaho, which has become the number two dairy state, does also. And... You know, New York and Vermont and Berkshires and these traditional dairy places are really dying. I mean, the, the, the farms are, are going out of business at uh, a shocking rate. And right now, New York farmers are really in a lot of trouble because um, the... The price uh, for milk is fixed in accordance with how much you sell. So people in New York City, you guys, have been drinking less milk. And it's killing milk farmers because one of the results of that is that the milk price is going down. And so is their profit margin. And so, you know, and these are small. I mean, a, a big, I've, I, I visited a big uh, Hudson Valley dairy it had 400 cows you know they, they're not they're, they're not big and it's a, it's mm -hmm. a whole different thing you know and they have they, they, they name their cows, the cows all have names and Ronnie Brook builds these uh, foam rubber uh, beds for his cows to rest on <laughs> between milkings and, uh, uh, you can do all sorts of things if you're not too big what, what are some of the environmental impacts of these giant dairies with, like, thousands of heads of cows? Well, it, it turns out that uh, the, the, the worst uh, thing for climate change is not carbon. It's uh, methane gas, which is uh, farts. Um, Cows fart a lot, um, and if you have 4,000 cows farting a lot, uh, you actually have an environmental problem. Um, you're also a very unpleasant neighbor. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, the whole thing about large farms is not as good for the environment. You know, um, manure, you know, uh, animal waste. The, the whole thing in nature is set up so that animal waste is beneficial and you can use it or you can, you know, it, it, it works for nature. Mm -hmm. um, unless you get too much, it's too concentrated. If you have, you know, 4,000 cows producing this stuff every day, you've got too much and, and, and nature can't handle it and it becomes uh, uh, polluting. It becomes uh, destructive of rivers. Um, I was wondering, after doing all the research, especially into big dairies and you know modern modern operations, um, did did writing this book change the way that you consume dairy in any way? The way I consume dairy. Um, what you're consuming? No, I, I'm not a big dairy consumer. You know, and uh, it, it, it um, 
What it did do is it, because I'm not a farm guy, I'm an, I'm an ocean guy, mm. and um, I, I relate to fishermen, and that's, that's what I know. And so this was my, a, a whole different experience getting involved with farmers. Mm -hmm. And I um, developed a tremendous respect for farmers. And they're such hardworking people. They never have a day off. Um, they just work and work and work and, 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 and try to make it turn out. And uh, um, uh, just tremendous dedication. And, and um, it's, I sometimes wonder why they do it. You know, but, you know, I've spent my life watching people go to sea and risk their life. It's more dangerous than farming. And it makes perfect sense to me. So I guess these are people who love the land like some of us love the sea. Um, to wrap up, I wanted to ask you um, your opinions on uh, some trends in, in dairy right now. Um, Kim Severson just wrote a really interesting article in the New York Times called, Is America Ready for Cottage Cheese? And um, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Like, why, why is cottage cheese less popular? It was historically such an important food. And, and do you think that it's like poised for a comeback? Um, I do think it's poised for a comeback, but... I really like cottage cheese. I do too. Uh, and, you know, even zero-fat cottage cheese is good. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 think it, I think it got out of fashion because it got associated with unpleasant diets. Mm -hmm. uh, the Richard Nixon story. <laughs> what the, the, the Richard Nixon story is that in, in 1968, when he was running for president, his handlers try to make him more human, which, you know, couldn't be done. It was always a mistake. Um, and so he did this interview in which they asked him kind of human questions. And somehow they got on the subject of, oh, it was dieting. They got on the subject <laughs> of dieting. And he says, well, I watched my weight by eating cottage cheese. And uh, terrible, it's terrible stuff. But... Um, then I learned how, how to make it tolerable. What you do, you see, is you mix it with ketchup. <laughs> that might have killed cottage cheese right there. Probably. <laughs> he single-handedly did right, it. Right. But do you think, do you think it's going to come back? And, and as Kim Severson says, will, will they chobani it and they make it like a trendy yogurt? Or maybe like they're going to come and make it an artisanal sort of product? Well, you know, the thing about Chobani and that whole yogurt trend is it was about, it was about fruit flavors, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I think that would be an awful thing to do with cottage cheese. Uh, they do sell cottage cheese with pineapple in it, which is um, clearly a mistake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I think cottage cheese is good stuff and... and uh, you know, it's funny how these things, they, they, sort, of, they, they, they sort of come and go. Mm -hmm. um, um, well, I think with that, we'll open it up to some Q&As, if anyone has any questions. Sure. You mentioned um, with some uh, sarcastic condescension that as New Yorkers, yeah. we're uh, drinking less milk. Um, and if you look at the kind of milk aisle in the last 10, 15 years, there's a whole lot of very new non-cow milks present there now. What's your sort of take on just maybe the forecast for the next 10, 15 years in terms of milk? Are we going to continue to drink less milk from cows and more 
milk from other sources? I don't know. I think, I think it needs to be said, and uh, dairy producers have gone to court on this, that that other stuff you're talking about is not milk. Um, and I think that's an important point because I don't really get it. I mean, if you don't want to drink milk, don't drink milk. But I, I, I don't understand this thing. I don't want to drink milk, so I'm going to drink almonds. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something completely different. Um, I think it's, you know, as, as I said, this, was, this is like going back to the Middle Ages. And I think, uh, I, I suspect it's a trend that will pass. Um, but on the other hand, I think that people will drink less and less milk. Uh, the reason I say the trend will pass is because there's no real reason to have a substitute. Uh, I mean, that, that sort of leads to the, the dairy industrial complex question and the original, the first science deniers in my life, which was the American Dairy Association saying you never outgrow your need for milk. But I had. Well, they, used, they used to have uh, Professor Harold de Graff yes, in yes. his white coat telling you that. And you it think was 20 was, years later you think that he was I found real... out that he was a professor of economics. Yeah. Not, not I mean, a... he wasn't a real doctor. No, he was a PhD. But that... No, I mean, the, the American dairy, it's, it's, yeah. it's much more than that. Yeah. It's, it's this whole thing about drink milk and you'll be big and strong, how they get all these athletes in the 60s when the, when the Green Bay Packers won everything year after year. You know, they had Vince Lombardi saying, everyone on my team drinks milk. That's how we do it. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've always done these ridiculous things. And, and um, it is one of those controversies, but I, I, I think that the preponderance of science would say that milk does not necessarily make you big and strong. Yeah. Well, I, w I was going to ask about one other category of not milks, which I remember when I was a kid, there was a thing called filled milk or mellow ream it was sold as. Yeah. And it had uh, oil, I think, uh, substituted for the milk fat. And I'm just wondering what the history of that was, if you I know, don't, I, don't, I haven't I, found it. I don't really know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea because, of course, um, doctors will often say that... Uh, Milk fat isn't good for you. Uh, you know, that's the whole idea of skim milk. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's one of these things that uh, I don't think I'm going to resolve. But my personal physician says that adults shouldn't drink milk. Um, that was his response to my answering the question, what are you working on? <laughs> All right, I think that's all the time we have. Um, we have a book signing following the talk, and we have some drinks and some snacks, obviously all dairy-focused, so stick around. Uh, Mark will be out, just out here signing books. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Kat Johnson for sharing that interview, and to our engineer, Dave Tattashore, for making it possible. You can hear Kat each week on Heritage Radio Network on the timely food news and issues show, Meet and Three. And this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.